This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Hey everybody, it's Robert Gowan, and on this episode, I'm joined by Scott Johnson, Tom, and Jen Satterley, and we're going to be talking about uh, anger management, but before we get into that, make sure that you check out All Secure Foundation. This topic's going to fit right with it, and you can go to allsecurefoundation.org in order to get more information on some of the programs and initiatives that they have going on in there. It's a great nonprofit for you to check out, and if you're looking to uh, for some way to help support us here at the podcast, you can always go to patreon.com backslash mentors, the number four. For MIL and become a patron. Any type of donation is uh, very well appreciated. I want to jump right into this. It was back at, I think it was September 12th, you guys posted something in the All Secure Foundation that really struck a nerve, Jen and Tom, with a lot of folks. And it was about how anger is a tool in combat and how, you know, when, when we jo- go into the military, the military does a really good job of building us up and stripping down the civilian side of us in order to make us into this, you know, fighting machine, if you will, especially in a combat arms mode. Yet they don't always do a great job of helping us transition when we get out to bring us back into a mode to where we can easily assimilate back into the the private sector. And anger is one of those things that is kind of Part of that, because you want it in some situations, you want to have some kind of programming that you, you want of individuals and stuff when they're, they're going to go and face into a combat situation. No, yeah, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. Anger at All Secure Foundation, we work with uh, primarily special operation combat veterans. So the primary issue that we hear, not only post-service, but in-service is why can't I control my anger? I get really upset at small things. You know, I lash out at my wife or kids and I almost feel like Tom described, like I'm watching it happen. I'm not even in control of myself at that point in time, which starts a guilt and shame spiral. But, you know, one of the things we try to do is create awareness that anger, aggression, violence, those are tools that are used for survival. So when you're in a combat situation, you absolutely develop a muscle memory um, and your brain creates neurons and patterns. So really it's a biological response. Um, It's part of post-traumatic stress where the brain that is affected by post-traumatic stress, part of its primary response uh, and, and function is to control anger. So when we look at that part of the brain that's inflamed and um, not functioning the way that the individual wants it to. Part of that's just biology. Part of that's muscle memory. A lot, of, a lot of it is um, once developed and you don't realize that you have it, which I did not. I mean, even on our wedding night, we got into an argument. I was, I was angry, and we got into an argument on our wedding night. Um, <laughs> that's I, not I the right from, time. Yeah, that's not uh, exactly. <laughs> I, I come from. I want to redo. <laughs> I come from analytical thinking, factual information, and that's what I make my judgments on. I'm an analytical, factual thinker, and she's the most emotional thinker or emotional behavioral person ever. But she's analytical as well. So when she broke it down for me, it made a lot of sense. And it's, I had a breakthrough the other night thinking about it that I lash out. Basically, because that's what all I know, that's what I've been taught, and that's the best way for me to deal with things. Um, and guys will say that I can't, I can't do this, I can't do that, it's too difficult, you know, and then they kill themselves or, or they recluse. I'm like, 
you've tackled some of the hardest, most difficult things in life to do, and you're telling me you can't get a hold of yourself. You know, it's just awareness, like Jen said, that once I became aware of it, that it is a tool, and I I fall back on it immediately when I feel threatened or embarrassed, nervous, or or scared. I'll fall back to anger immediately, just based off of my training. And once I'm aware of that, and I catch it, I slowly start catching it, and I and I catch it sooner. I may I may and oh sorry okay, what used to be two hours is now two seconds, and uh, and like I tell everybody, you know you can drive a nail on a board every time you scream at your wife or, or say something horrible. And every time you say you're sorry, take the nail out. You know, you might remove those nails, but there's always holes left behind and that takes forever to repair. You leave those holes behind. And that's been the toughest for, for me to be the person that lashes out. She'll be the victim of it. And I see that. And then that comes back on me about, oh, I just did that. I caused that. I'm always going to cause this. And, and it's a horrible cycle. And then I get depressed about it. And, and then we may fight about that, you know. So it's awareness. And I know that all, like all the guys I know, if they just stopped from it and thought about it, they would catch themselves. Because I know it happens to many, many of them. What do you think within the training, um, what part of it do you think that actually started bringing that about? I mean, you know, was it when you were in the special operations community or was it something that came out of the combat situation? So in other words, if somebody says, well, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what triggered it. And is there a trigger today that triggers it? I think fear probably triggered a lot of it. Yeah. I think the ability to take another human's life you have to overcome that doubt in your head that that's right um you have to dehumanize the enemy so we call them different names but i think mentally we also do that and we just i think that that manifests as anger you know if you hate somebody or if you actually if even if you love somebody you can hate them just as much and you can take things out on them verbally mentally physically even at times and it's I just think it's, um, I think it was fear for me. Fear triggers it. Um, and, and now what embarrassment triggers it because that's fear. Those are kind of those. Somalia for anger. sure. Oh. oh, Somalia is when, you know, I don't think they don't train you to be angry. Obviously. Um, they train you to be violent, right? You can be violent without being angry and aggressive. Yeah. You can be aggressive without being angry. Um, I think the anger came in after, after Somalia with, Oh, my friends are killed too now. That's that's not fair, you know. So now I'm angry at the enemy. I'm angry at the reason I was there. I'm angry, you know, at the job I chose that put me there. And then it's just kind of a normal everyday feeling to be um, to switch straight into anger. What what are the two main emotions? You got love and fear, or love and fear, love and fear, and, and fear and anger are on one side, you know. Um, kind of that yin and yang, you know. Uh, when people start talking about it, I know Jen, you and I talked about this yesterday about those two things and about how they have to be somewhat kept in balance. No, absolutely. And like we talked about yesterday, a lot of the um, survival mechanisms of combat are all going to kind of be in that fear bucket. So the things that you need to do, not only to come home, but to make sure that the person to your left and right come home are going to be things that tools that are, are used for survival. And um, really, Tom has become uh, grateful for those 
tools of war. Um, they just don't have a place on the home front. They just don't belong in the home or the marriage or in parenting. And so being able to disassociate from a deployment and we wonder why, well, the guys come home and there's a lot of tension in the house. I had just spoken to a uh, combat. So her father was in Somalia with Tom and he committed suicide two years ago, uh, two years ago in January. And so she had talked about, you know, how when he came home as a child, what that felt like. And she said, you know, he did a really good job of kind of hiding everything. She said, but on occasion, I would, you know, surprise him by coming home. You know, I came home from the mall early and my dad was sitting on the couch crying. And she said how shocking that was because he was such a quiet professional. She didn't even know what Delta Force was growing up. She barely knew like what he did. I think she said she was in second grade when uh, she had to write a paper or something. And it was, what does your dad do? And she had to go home and ask her dad. And he said, well, I'm in the army. And she goes, oh my gosh, you are? Because he never was in uniform. But she said um, the one time she had saw him breaking down and crying, um, it was about Somalia. And he said, I miss Earl so much. And um, that was pretty much it. That was the emotion that she saw. She said she didn't see a whole lot of anger in the household, but she knew of other friends who were dealing with that, um, who had aggressive uh, father in the house, who uh, the, everyone in the household is tiptoeing around when they would come home from deployment. And, um, you know, a lot of spouse fighting. Um, and so it gets to the point where she would have a, they would have a joke about when do you go back? When are you deploying again? Because it's easier when you're not here. It's quieter when you're not here. Um, and that's a real heavy burden on on a spouse is to protect the children, to protect themselves, really put themselves last in every situation. Um, and we look at the spouses really to be therapists, <laughs> doctors, because there isn't a whole lot of information on how to deal with anger and aggression and violence in the in the home. And it's something a lot of spouses have talked to me about, like, I can't go to my parents or my friends and talk to them about this because they'll tell me to leave. They'll tell me, what are you doing? And I love my spouse and I want to work through this, but it's, I don't know how. It's easy to judge other people and give those snap decisions. I will yeah. leave him. Leave him. Yeah. Well, People have cheated on other people and they don't leave them because they love them. They work through it. People beat each other. They don't they don't leave each other. People cuss each other out. You know, it's it's, it's not that simple. Um, it, it is simple if you put the time in to get over it, you know. But getting over, over the damage that you've caused is tough for a lot of people. We're going to talk to someone today who's, you know, my wife cheated on my wife and I wanted to be better. And then I, I think, I don't know, I cheated again. And now she's left me. I'm like, dude, what do you, what do you, what do you call it? I mean, what am I going to do? Go call her and beg her to come back. Sometimes you, you pay for it. So the consequences aren't what you always want. And guys are afraid of that, but I mean, that's life. You, you lash out, you do something over and over and over again, or you're an alcoholic and you and whatever it is you do is you're you're drunk over and over again and you go get better. You come home and you're like, I'm better now, honey. And she's like, I hate you, you know, or or the spouse is like, I'm already done with you, you know? And guys don't want to deal with that. They don't wanna they don't wanna admit that that's that's their life now. They've they've caused that damage. 
they have to, you know, suffer the consequences, and then they reach out and they're like, uh, I'll, uh, help, help me. I'm like, okay, you've helped yourself. I can't save your marriage because you screwed that up. But you know what? You can go on in life a better person. Think about what you've caused and not do that again, you know, versus go back into that cycle of misery. I can't get that one woman I lost back. So it's it's about perspective and opening your aperture and seeing everything out there that you've caused and seeing ways through it. Um, Isn't that partly, dude, though, I think what I hear from you guys is that there's a bit of beating yourself up. So as an individual, you know, coming back from a combat situation, maybe the reason why the family wants you to go back or maybe the reason why you want to go back is that's that level of, um, you know, high intensity and it's a combat situation that you're very comfortable with and people that understand you, you understand the op tempo is such a way that you can drown out all the other things that are going on in the world and focus just on the mission and the objective. Whereas when you come home, people are expecting you to act and behave a specific way. They're expecting you to be very loving and caring or the individual that you once were. Um, there's a lot of pressure for you to conform and to assimilate uh, rather quickly and to embrace everything that this level of what's going on around you. And in your family, uh, as your nucleus, is expecting you to at least come in and not try to take over the situation, but be a part of the family. I easiest place for me to operate was combat i didn't have to be nice i just you know you bark orders i didn't have to really bark that many because i worked around enough guy uh, enough professionals that i was lucky to be with them um they knew what to do anyway i was just like oh, go ahead do that yes that's that looks perfect even though i didn't need to be there because it was already perfect um coming home and dealing with children and emotions terrified me i I didn't mind being home. It was it was okay, but that joke, hey, honey, you're, well, you're home finally, and then a week later, you're like, when's your next trip? You know, because you're in two different two different worlds. You know, your spouse is at home doing the school, doing work, whatever they may be doing. You're at combat or training, and then you come home, and you're you're just in the way. I mean, you have to you have to learn how to get integrated again, right? Reintegrate, and then you're off again. You know, and then retirement, you reintegrate, and that's forever. And and a lot of people really don't know how to make it through that. Like, wow, it's a new person. And we tell people, you have to get to know each other again. You met when? High school? After high school? You know, a lot of guys get married early or remarried or remarried and remarried again. But you still have to get to know that person again. And you're you're obviously different. So They're different. It's a process again. To- but I think that, that Tom had brought up something the other day I thought was really interesting about how um, you know, World War II and these veterans would have a little bit more time to go from combat to home. You know, they might be on a ship for a few weeks or there was a little bit more space between combat and home. Whereas now he would say, you know, I would be in Afghanistan or Iraq and then I'd be home in my living room 18 hours later. And, you know, right right when he gets home, it's, hey, can you run to the grocery store? I need, you know, we've got a dinner party tomorrow night. And His IDs all along the way to shops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like um, there's just no decompression. 
people who are in the private sector and civilians and stuff may be listening to this. And, and I would say those individuals who don't necessarily have a long drive, have a difficult time at work, uh, they're under a lot of pressure and stress there to perform, uh, and maybe the same thing. They they don't have that opportunity to decompress. Or there's people who actually work from home who may, may find it challenging that they leave their office space within their home. They don't have the opportunity to decompress, and they bring those same pressures and stress and everything into the home environment, um, I can tell you that when I drove an hour, an hour and a half to work, it was one of the things I hated to drive. It was absolutely miserable through all the traffic, yet it did allow me that time to get rid of it, get my thoughts uh, of the day, cycle through everything, and then start realizing I'm on my way home and realizing that um, my thoughts started carrying me into the home environment. And so it was much easier when I got there. And then when I started working from home, I started realizing that if I had an office that was positioned where we normally lived, in other words, our place like living room or kitchen or something like that, and the office was nearby, then I, I couldn't decompress as easily as I could if my office was upstairs or down in the basement where it was away from the normal day-to-day -day activity. And um, I could take a moment after work to kind of decompress. And when I walked out, I wasn't in the living area. I was more in an area where I could then still kind of decompress and realize I can have a separation, if that makes any sense. Uh, ab yeah, absolutely. And Jen taught me something the other day. When I come home from trips, um, I walk in the door and the kids are like, hey, everywhere. And I immediately <laughs> shut down. I immediately, Chaos. I immediately, um, I don't know I'm doing it, but she tells me my face will change. I shut down. Yeah. Um, it's too much too soon for me. And I, I'm coming home. I'm excited. I got all these plants. I might have bought some gifts, you know, at the airport on the way out. And and it's like, as soon as I walk in the door and I hear the kids screaming, I immediately look at the sink. I look at the table. I look at the floor. And I'm like, Ugh, I'm home. It's messy. Kids are screaming. And I and I shut down. And she sees it. So we get in this little this little cycle of 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 a little anger, a little what's wrong, nothing, you know, and a couple of days of grumpiness before I come out of it. And she taught me, um, gave me some tapes, some meditation tapes or, or uh, any anything to take me out of it. And I would listen to it on the flight coming home and then listen to it on the drive to the house. And when I got home, she's like, you did something different. I don't know what it was, hmm. but you came home happy this time. <laughs> you you, you weren't grumpy. You weren't all over the kids um, about this and that. And I was like, yeah, uh, well, I did. I listened to that tape, you know, or whatever. I, I listened to the ocean waves crashing on the beach or something, I, whatever it was. But it... it it took me, it was that separation, turn off one, turn on the other, but had a break in the middle. But I, I just had a thought. I'm interested to talk about high pressure CEOs that w when they go home at night, yeah. what are their issues? I mean, pressure's pressure. It's stress, exactly stress. the same thing. I can tell you, I wasn't a CEO, but I was an executive in a fortune 50 company. And I can tell you that the day to day stress and pressure was very much the same thing. And um, I would do traveling as well because my staff was in remote locations and um, not where I'm at. And so it caused me then to have to make long trips in some cases to California. So you got a five and a half hour flight, six hour flight or so coming back and um, and sometimes in a red eye. And um, like you, and it's funny that you mentioned that, I was thinking um, about some of the worst periods in um I would have to try to think of where is my happy place. And so my happy place was actually, we enjoy traveling to Hawaii. And so I actually uh, got a tape of some music that I had downloaded. And I would listen to that, just like you were talking about, Tom, uh, 
on the flight. It was soothing. It put me in that place. It allowed me to escape the moment. And so when I walked in the door, I didn't carry that pressure and weight with me. But I will tell you that when I left that organization, I've mentioned this on several of the episodes here on our pod, that um, I didn't realize it until I'd been away from that that position and that role and responsibility for about 30 days. And I was in the car. It may not have even been that long. And I had to go get something with my son-in-law. Uh, they were here. We were going to have a barbecue or something of that nature. So we jumped in the car to go get something. We had a nice talk and chat on the way there, on the way back. And I pulled into the garage, turned off the car, and he just looked at me. And he goes, it's good to have you back. Uh-huh. And I go, what do, you, what do you mean? And he goes, you've been gone for a couple of years. It's just wow. good to have you back. And he meant the mental checkout. I knew what he meant. I knew he meant wow. I wasn't there. I may have been there in, in physical body form, but like you're talking about, Tom, you're someplace else. Your mind is someplace else. You're not sure, um, you know, how you're trying to go through the motions of coping with the day to day, yet you're really not, um, you're really not there. And so I think the pressure and the and the feelings and everything are very similar. Although it you know you never want to relate it to a combat situation, mind you. But I think the types of um, mental issues that we're describing here and challenges and stuff are very similar in all walks of life. Whether you're LEO, whether you're a high pressure executive, whether you're you know a combat veteran or something of that nature, there may be nuances and things that are a little bit different, but they each feel pressure, stress, anger. Uh, all of that very similar. You know, people would probably chop my head off for saying this. Um, and if you don't edit this out, people <laughs> would be upset probably because you, you just said, I don't want to compare combat to this and that. Stress to me is stress and pressure. Now, will I die? No. But is it just as important, you know? Yeah. Is your job just as important to meet a deadline or make a timeline or you're handling hundreds of millions of dollars and if you screw it up, a loss of a job is the same is is just as big a fear, and I, and I know that they go through as much stress. Now, getting killed you know, that's stressful, but I don't think that's what people fear in combat all the time because you wouldn't go if you thought you were going to get killed. Most people would not even go if they thought they would get killed. Is there a chance? Sure, but everybody's like, ah, oh, yeah, it's that whole serial killer. You know, he was such a nice guy. He was just down the street and never never lashed out or anything. You go to combat, and you're like, and nobody. I never thought I was going to die up until a certain point where I was like, oh, okay. And I couldn't go anywhere. But that's not the thought every day. The thought is is messing up, not doing your job correctly, um, which could lead to someone else's death or your death. But my fear was not doing my job correctly. The stress of everyday life was to be better and to do it right. It wasn't, I might die, I might die, I might die. So I think the pressures and the stresses are, are, are the same, really. Yeah, it's very That's a very valid point. I think the pressure of being the breadwinner, the individual that has to make a, a certain income to maintain a lifestyle. And of course, if you're, you know, if you start making um, a certain amount of income that you're very accustomed to within and a lifestyle that you're very used to, and you know that in a moment that that could go away by making those wrong decisions, or unfortunately, sometimes it's out of your control. There are just layoffs that occur. There are co- companies that decide that they want to cut cost, and uh, your position could very well be one of those. Yeah, I, I can definitely see what you're talking about. I guess that um, I equate it more maybe to a situation, Jen, that you ran into where you had 
people that you were speaking to from the LEO community who who couldn't see how you could relate to them as a better uh, spouse of a veteran. Uh, because you're not an LEO wife, you know, you don't deal with the same type of situation. So that's why I use that because not to say that we're different and that you don't know how I feel, but maybe I'm trying to be understanding that I don't know how you felt. There was a situation where I spoke to a law enforcement uh, wife's group and uh, one of the wives asked a question. She said, oh, you're a veteran spouse. Yes. And basically, why are you here then? We're all law enforcement wives. And I said, listen, I understand that there's a difference between us, of course. Um, But post-traumatic stress is post-traumatic stress. And, you know, your husband um, comes home every night or day, depends on, you know, their work schedule. And uh, Veteran spouses or or active duty spouses have their husbands go away for a period of time and come back. So, you know, absolutely. Tom would, um, when I first met him, drive on the opposite side of the street. If he saw a parked car, if he saw something that looked odd or unfamiliar, um, he would avoid it. He would get nervous, anxious. And and anxiety is one of the the main triggers for a lot of combat veterans is is this paranoia and anxiety, which triggers anger. So there's so many triggers towards anger, but these wives um, were very welcoming, except for the one who just, I think she had a chip on her shoulder and was just, she was angry, you know? And I said, listen, um, we can all help each other. You know, we can understand and have compassion and, and a bond through our, experiences, no matter where the PTS comes from, you know, whether it's um, your husband was involved in, you know, an active shooter, or he saw some really terrible things over and over and over again, then he, you know, one of the law enforcement wives I talked to said that her husband was coming home on Thanksgiving dinner, the entire family's there, the room's full of people. And he had just Um, come from a hotel where a woman had drowned her baby. So he's dealing with that all day and obviously is upset and walks in the door on Thanksgiving with the chaos, right? So that's a trigger for Tom too, is too many uncertainties happening, you know, too many, it's loud and and there's people everywhere and chaos is um, not something that he deals with very well or uncertainty. And so she couple said that with the fact that you've ruined a couple of Thanksgivings before birthdays. Before. Well, yeah, and, you know, she said the whole family's to... like <laughs> hugging him and, you know, expecting him to be happy and excited. And, Hey, what are you thankful for today? And he just walked out the front door and stood on the porch and she followed him out. And he's like, I can't do this right now. Um, you know, I need to go home. And she said, my family understands, but doesn't understand. And I said, well, that's the common bond that we have is that, you know, stress is stress, anxiety is anxiety, and anger is anger. And we can work on, you know, ways to cope and deal and manage with it, no matter where the source of trauma is coming from. I work with a lot of Leos. I can tell you, we're pretty much the same in our in our language, how we talk to people, how we come home angry. They do it every day. They live in the area they do it in. And when when some of the Leos are telling me, well, you had to go to combat, you know, it's I'm not the same. I'm like, you live in the combat zone. Yeah. I get to fly home away from it. You have to drive past it 
you know, oh, I shot somebody there or somebody got murdered there every day. I, I kind of consider that a little bit more stressful for you. And Scott, you, you guys just dealt with a mental health day over there. And I, and the way I kind of look at the whole mental health day is um, it goes beyond just, you know, post-traumatic stress. It goes into a lot of what we're talking about and just trying to deal with the full assimilation and uh, some of the challenges and stuff, especially from veterans. Yeah, I, I think for me, the military, law enforcement, high-pressure jobs, they're a role, aren't they? And when you go and do that job, you have to be in that role. And when you come home at the end of the day, at the end of your deployment, your tour, whichever it is, you switch to a different role. And, you know, that's your standard family life, your normal life. And there needs to be a process in time between switching from one to the other. And depending on the situation and the level of stress, how long that process in time, it could be a 45-minute commute is enough for you to switch from one role into uh, the, the different role, or it could be you need a week's decompression time or whatever it may be. For some people, I think they can't differentiate between the roles and they get stuck and certain things will trigger somebody to click back into a role and particularly around the military and for like yourself Tom as a, an SF guy you'd almost expect it to be Jekyll and Hyde as two separate opposing ends of the scale you know and the military wants you to be Dr. Jekyll and your family wants you to be Mr. Hyde and you can't whichever way around it is and Sometimes I was going to say, is that the right direction? <laughs> we had that joke the other night. We were going, who's the bad one? Who's the bad one? <laughs> so you, you, you sometimes can be one of the, the characters, but something will trigger you to be the other character. And, and for most people, it's being the normal father, uh, husband, wife, mother, whatever it may be. And something will trigger you to be the monster again. You know, and it's it's difficult to get once you've been a monster and being put in that position for, as Jen rightly said, for a survival situation, you have to be that or you're not coming back. And whether that be, you know, in a combat situation, in a law enforcement situation as well, you guys all carry arms uh, or the, the LEOs in the, the US all carry arms. We don't uh, in the UK. So every time a, a law enforcement officer in the US goes out the door, they're in a position. Uh, the potential situation where they have to draw a weapon and take somebody's life, you know, and you live in at that elevated stress level for the period of the job. And you're right what you said, Tom, you know, those guys, they go home every night. So they don't have the decompression time for one. And they go back the next morning and, you know, you pull a late shift and you, you got six hours off and you've got to try and get some sleep, but you've also got to see your family and you might not have seen your kids and you've got to sit down and have dinner, dinner. And it's a, it's a difficult situation. And I think where the military lets people down is they don't give you that decompression time always. Like exactly what you said earlier, Tom, I came back from Afghanistan, literally 14 hours, 15 hours, uh, with a flight the time we changed we drove back to the camp i handed in my weapon and i got in the car and went home and that was it you know but the, the british military now try and introduce downtime they'll stop in cyprus for a couple of days and you know just uh have a, a phased 
cool down, if you like, from not just going from being in an up-tempo situation to being in a bar or a pub, you know, and things go wrong drastically. Were they like, oh, yeah, right. We're going to let you go there for two days. Yeah, we're going to pay for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's a big scam now. We just want to go party versus getting over something. And and they're like, they're never going to pay for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Could could you imagine, though, too, and just listening to what you were talking about, Scott, if you, if, you know, Tom, if you would have had your family on the other side of the wire, you know, and each time you came from a combat situation, you come back in and you go into your, you know, hooch, your hut or whatever, your house, and there's your family and you're supposed to eat dinner and assimilate and, you know, oh, dark 30, you're going to be waking up again on another mission. I mean, could you imagine that? No, no way in hell. Um, I would, (laughs) I would have destroyed everything. Um, I, mean, I think that's why a lot of guys turn to drinking. It's that that thing you can do by yourself, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and and find change in a short amount of time. And, I feel and better, forget right? And feel better until until you take until it over you the top. Down, and, yeah, and then yeah. you wake up the next day and you're like, I'll never drink again until about three in the afternoon. And you're like, <laughs> Ooh, man, it's that time for a drink. You know, I when I went through that period for years, it was lying about drinking. I mean, I was just trying to be by myself be with people while being by myself at a bar. I'd never talked to anybody, but I was around people. So that was my socialization. Yeah. You felt Wouldn't comfortable. talk to anybody. Yeah. If they tried to talk to me, I'd say something rude or, or, or gross or something that would drive them away. Like, you know, I'll cut your head off and bury it in the desert. And they're like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know. But That's a little crazy. It was just, um, <laughs> you know, it wasn't always that, but um, it was just, I needed people but I did not want to interact and then I would go home, you know, and all by myself. And it was, it's an out of body experience. And I've heard that from a lot of people when they ruin birthdays, when anger takes over, they don't want to do it. They know they're doing it at the time. They can't stop, which means they're aware of it now, which is step one. Really. Once, once you realize you're doing it and you're aware of it and you hate it, that's, that's awareness. Now you got to catch yourself earlier on and earlier on. And, and the quicker I caught myself, this, the more it would go away and the less times it would happen. I wish there was something that triggered happiness versus triggering anger. Yeah. You know, we don't get triggered. Well, people do get triggered happiness. Surprise. Everybody's like, ah! and everybody's like surprised <laughs> to me. And I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, and she's like, can't you be happy for anything? I go, I am happy. That's amazing what you just did. And, <laughs> And she's like, but I need someone to jump but up. But you're down. frowning. Like, yay, yay, yay. And I'm like, I, I don't get triggered happy. Um, well, it wasn't part of your tools that you used. I mean, Tom would talk about how, because I said, you know, you're really hypercritical. Like nothing is ever good enough. Everything needs to be the standard of perfection. And um, you'll never be happy if, if you think everything needs to be perfect because there's no such thing as perfect. And, um, but for him, it's really checking off that need of certainty. And if I can kind of control my surroundings, um, and and have some sort of sense of, um, you know, like I I'm part of this house, I'm part of the situation. I'm going to try to control it and manage it. And it needs to be perfect. And when we really started breaking down, well, why, And again, it's because what he needed to do in his day-to-day work job overseas was to try to control chaos. Again, to survive was 
we can't have things that are loose ends. We can't have things that are chaotic because that's going to get somebody killed. That's going to get me killed. So that sense of anxiety around chaos or the anxiety around things not being in order, that's, again, it's a survival trigger for him. And so we have to retrain. Um, we have to look at ways to kind of mitigate that stress and anxiety because that is an anger trigger. That is going to set him off if it's, something feels out of order. You have to you have to train warriors. You have to train well. You have to train everything. Really, you have to train everything. Some things you don't need untrained from. I think, and I just wrote this down: deconstruction of a warrior. Um, there needs to be a process, and yeah. I'm going through it with Jen of how to repurpose my thoughts, repurpose my feelings, repurpose my life. Really, I'm repurposing everything because everything everything before its purpose was to survive right. or to kill or defend or to protect, to attack, you know, it, it, and now it's not, and none of that. Really, I mean, kind of in life a little bit, but really it's, it's none of that. And you need to deconstruct who you are and use the same tools for something else. Now you have the tools, but now that the job is different and maybe this is a good, I, go ahead. No, no. I, I was like, when I come home, I get angry for things. I don't want to. I don't really care that there's a couple of dishes in the sink. What I care about is that I lost control of something, and or I've told somebody to do something and they didn't do it, so I feel uh, slighted, you know, or I feel uh, disrespected. It's, it's all those things that, as a leader, you kind of want and you hope to have, but you'll you'll never get that from children. I mean, they they just do what they do, and uh, and I'm trying to teach perfect kids how to be perfect people. You know, which will never happen, which will always drive me crazy. I want to have an AAR after that. And, of course, they're thinking something else. I'm like, oh, my God, shut up. I see that their, their mind is somewhere else. And I literally try to drag them back in like, you listen now. We're going to have a 30-minute lecture. I was going to say, like, do you have do you pull the team together and go, okay, let's talk about what was good there, what was not good. Let's. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they're on their phones. They're, uh-huh, sure. But, I'm, like, you know, no, I'm serious. He talked you know? about this was that they never in the unit ever talked about what was good. And they only picked apart what went wrong. Yeah. I mean, you talked about that. You guys would sit around with AARs. Nobody was like, hey, you did awesome CQB today. It was, oh, my God, you were a little slow here. or You didn't do that. Brutal and and bloody. Yeah. And And you can't bring that into the house. Nobody wants that type of AAR situation, especially if they're 11 years old. It doesn't fly. It's like trying to train a dog by kicking it when it does something wrong versus giving it a treat when it does something well. You know, it's it's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it maybe doesn't th- work. Maybe this would be a good time for us to kind of segue then into some of the ways in, uh, you can manage it through some of the techniques, Jen, that you've come up with within the All Secure Foundation, but that there's other solutions out there through adult health and anger management and those types of things as well through Mayo Clinic. And But it, this might be a good time to do a segue to talk about what are some of the ways that you can step away and get that kind of help or help yourself. I think um, one of the things that Tom had brought up has been really successful for a lot of guys, which is to find that space to decompress before coming into the house. Um, some of the guys have even like will sit in their car outside front of their house. And I think really it's so key to have the family on board with with the different techniques and mechanisms that you're trying to use. So the wife isn't like, why are you sitting in the car out front? You've just been, you just got home from Afghanistan. Everybody's waiting to see you and love on you. Um, What are you doing? But when everyone has a plan in the house um, and knows sort of, okay, this is what dad or mom is doing, 
of finding some way um, again, it doesn't matter if you're law enforcement or first responder or a veteran or a, a corporate CEO is finding that decompression time where you can biologically do things like bring down your cortisol levels and address the adrenaline and really kind of settle yourself. Um, and for some guys, it's five minutes. For some guys, it's an hour or two hours or go for a walk before you come home. Just address what you're feeling. Uh, create awareness around those feelings. And if you need more time and space, ask for it. Um, I think that's one of the key things that we've really worked on is awareness. First and foremost is awareness. And even when Tom might be getting angry for what seems to be no reason at all, out of the blue, we could be driving and he'll say, I'm starting to feel agitated and I'm starting to get angry. And before I used to get defensive. Why are you getting angry at me? Nothing. I'm, I'm just sitting here. And my language has turned um, to a place of awareness as well, which is, okay, um, what what do you need from me? You know, do you want me to be quiet or you want to talk about something? Um, where is the anger coming from? You know, he'll say, oh, I feel it in my chest. Okay, well, what triggered it? I don't know. Okay, well, you know, let me know what you need. Well, I just, I need to sit quietly for a little bit. Or before we go into the restaurant, just give me 10 minutes. Okay. And so we work together as a team really to address the anxiety or the chaos. And there's times where, um, you know, working together, he might text me on his way home from a three-week contract where it's really stressful. He didn't sleep, um, you know, and he's coming into the house. We have a system for that as well. It might be, um, okay, I'm going to take the kids uh, to the mall or, or to the park. Why don't you come into the house, get situated, get settled. Let me know when you're ready and we'll come home. And I'll have a conversation with the kids. Tom's just gotten back after a few weeks. You know, uh, let's give them a day to settle. Um, so those are some things. Now, day-to-day -day life, Tom uh, does meditation. Um, that's hugely helpful. I worked with a lot of rangers who are doing yoga Um it's a really great Instagram account about that as well and how immensely helpful that has been. Um, another unit guy I just talked to started doing yoga. I think he's in week three of it now and he was really hesitant to start. His girlfriend um, encouraged him to start and so he's like, oh my God, I actually really like it. It gives me an hour just to settle everything and that's what it does is we have to think about the biological responses that are happening as well. So um, when you have PTS, it, you're in fight or flight mode all the time. So that switch, your your system switch is on. Mine is off. It takes a lot to, to flip that switch for me to get really angry. Tom's is permanently on. So that's why a little thing might, you know, he'll have an explosion over a cup in the sink. And it's not the cup in the sink. It's the chaos or the uncertainty or feeling disrespected or something like that. So Awareness is key. Um, it's been hugely helpful for him to say, okay, I'm, I'm starting to feel angry or anxious or paranoid or, or depressed. Whatever that emotion is behind the anger, that's what you need to deal with is the underlining issues. If, if you get it out, somebody can help you deal with it. If I'm doing it by myself in the car and she doesn't know it, she may ask me a question in the middle of it and I may lash out. So like step one is admitting, okay, you have an anger problem or you have PTS or something and, and stating it out loud. You know, people get on Facebook, whatever it is you do and, and, and write it down. I was just getting admit ready to it. say like journaling or oh, journaling's awesome. <clears throat> yeah. Journaling is put great. It out there and admit it. Now people know 
I mean, that doesn't, that's not an excuse. Veterans, not victim and veterans, not an excuse to act the way you act if it's poorly. Um, but once you get it out there and tell everybody, you know, now you can recognize it. Now you can work on it and then you can talk about it and bring it up. The second it happens, we never fight when that happens. We never argue or fight when that happens. We, we talk about it when I don't and I keep it to myself and she'll say something. Then we kind of fight because she had no idea. But you're right. Putting it down on paper, um, people who consistently write and journal, and it doesn't need to be like some, you know, novel that you're writing every night. And actually, you shouldn't edit it. And one of the most important things I, I'll tell the combat veterans I work with is make sure it's private. So don't leave it out on, you know, your bedside table or something. You need to have sort of that permission to free flow and just whatever thought it is, however dark it is put it down on paper, shove it on your mattress, put it someplace private so you have that sense of security. Nobody's going to read it. Um, five, 10 minutes a night is hugely helpful just to get it down. For some guys, they want to talk about it. Probably, you know, talking to another veteran's great because they have a sense of, I know what you're going through. Um, but when you look at other tribes like Native American tribes, they didn't put their warriors together. When they came home from battle, they isolated them. Um, so they would have a decompression time away from the community. And then when they came into the community, the warriors didn't share their battle stories together. The warriors shared their stories to their community. So the community got involved. They heard the stories. They got it off their chest. I think the same thing has been really positive and powerful um, when, when I talk to veterans is because I, I haven't been there. I don't know, but they know that they can trust me that I won't come as a place from judgment. So finding somebody to talk to, um, it could be a friend or a parent a sibling that you trust, uh, not to have judgment, just getting it off your chest, talking about it. Um, that starts to help that healing process as well. You mentioned something, Tom, that I think that's also very important that uh, is another step, right? And that's about don't bring up things that you've already apologized for or the other person has already apologized to you for. You know, those are things that's already been in the past. You should keep them there. Don't keep bubbling up those types of things. That that never works out. That's, uh, <laughs> that's good in theory. <laughs> never, ever works out. You know, live in the present because that's the only thing you can affect. You can shape your future in the present. You can't change the past in the present. So the only place you can live is in the present, you know, and the, and the actions that you do in the present do shape the future. But still, it's present to present to present to present that you can affect. Yeah. And, and when I figured that out and stopped you know, dwelling on the past, um, other than when I want to push her buttons or if I'm losing an argument, I'll bring up something <laughs> horrible. She did, you know, horrible. deflect, <laughs> deflect off of my attention. Um, yeah, like, like you said, that never works out to bring up those things that you've already apologized for. Um, but humans, you know, we push each other's buttons and we know what, what makes each other angry. And if we're losing an argument, we might launch that one out there, you know, like, well, remember that time you did that? Well, and I, I think that's a good point, too, is just I think that the spouse or the caregiver um, equally needs to have their needs met because, you know, when you look at spouses um, and children who are in the home of combat warriors, they have a they're also being diagnosed with PTS. They also have anxiety. Um, they also have s some of the same symptoms um, as the warriors have. So 
I think part of the process is that the spouse needs to make sure they're taking care of themselves, that they're doing the same sort of things of journaling and getting it down and having a safe person to talk to. Um, because if the warrior is getting help and he's getting better, but there's still a lot of resentment and anger um, in the home due to kind of past situations, um, you're, the house can't heal. So I think we need to talk about um, eventually and probably another day, but how the caregivers and spouses and children also can heal. So when we talk about humor, though, and using humor as a way to maybe to diffuse the situation, we also have to be careful that if you start joking at a time that uh, the other person is thinking it's very serious, uh, it's not going to go over too well either. But on some occasions, you might be able to, depend upon the situation, get out of it using humor, right? We have a um, <laughs> we have a kind of like, not a safe word, because that doesn't sound right. But we have a like, let's break the tension word. And we'll always come up with a different one that's just ridiculous. So if we're both like kind of boiling up and we say like last week it was avocado, we'll switch it up. But like, okay, avocado. <laughs> and then we know like, okay, we're, we're starting to both boil up and, and then we'll laugh about it. Um, and yeah, you're right. There's a time and place for humor. And I think, you know, Tom uses that mechanism a lot. He's, he's funny. So there's times where I'll just say, not now, like, I get it. Just give me now 10 minutes to kind of collect myself. And, and a lot of veterans are pursuers because that's again, Not part enough. of, <clears throat> yeah, that's part of um, another survival mechanism is to be the pursuer. And so um, I think one thing to do is, oh, as well in the house is allow that spouse or caregiver to have the space they need. You might've just blown up, caught yourself after five minutes, trying to make a joke well, that might have been really hurtful to the other person. Let them have their five or 10 or minutes, yeah. half an hour. Let them walk away. You don't need to fix it immediately because that other person doesn't want you there to fix it. And it, You know, you force yourself, oh, I'm going to fix this and I'm going <laughs> to chase you around the house until I fix this. You know, that doesn't work out either. So it's understanding your partner, you know, your spouse, that their needs and what, what works for them as well. You blow up or they blow up and now you're trying to fix it. And you chase, you know, I'm the pursuer. She's, she, you know, she, she likes to withdraw and... I've learned to, okay, don't chase her into the kitchen trying to fix it. Just let her go in there, talk about it later. You know, sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 30, you know, but it's better than chasing her through the house trying to. Yeah, trying well, to we have the, we don't go to bed angry rule. So yeah. everything gets dealt with before our heads hit the pillow. So, right. Well, and there's some things that I've read too in the past that uh, are could be helpful. We've covered a few of those, like think before you speak. You know, we mentioned that about uh, once you're calm, express your anger, but do it in a way in which you both can communicate as opposed to getting upset about certain situations. Uh, the first thing we talked about is very similar in your time out. Maybe it's going and getting some exercise. Go out there and beat a bag or, you know, run five miles or do something that allows you physical uh, exercise to reducing the stress and, and getting your body back into a, a cycle and stuff, you know, by taking that time out. Also, quit focusing on what made you mad and instead uh, anger, realize that anger won't fix anything. It might only make things worse. One thing I heard that I don't know if you guys use is to stick with the I statements. So instead of focusing on pushing the other person's button, focus on yourself. Yeah, have you guys yeah. ever used oh, that? Yep. Yeah. We we actually, that was a big turning point for us about two years ago. And, and I'd like to say this as well. We had somebody reach out this week and asked if he was 
um, a wuss, let's just say, for going to anger management therapy <laughs> or, or to going to therapy. Tom and I have been in therapy for three years, um, and it's been immensely helpful. One of the tools that we were taught, because again, they're going to, they help us retrain and get out of ourselves and see the situation. And one of the tools was to use the I statement. So mm. um, instead of you're doing this or, you know, being very accusatory, it's I feel this way, you know, because the truth of the matter is Tom and I speak a different language. We're from totally different worlds. So a situation might happen, <laughs> a situation might happen. And we've gotten to the point now where we just go, stop, stop, stop. I said this because I meant this. How did you think I meant it? And he'll say, I, you did this. And I said, no, I didn't. And so we get to the point where we're like, I feel like you were being this way, or I feel this or that. We need an um, interpreter sometimes. Our we language do. <laughs> is different, but we're saying the same things, you know. Right. And, uh, but no, that is a big. Um, that's been very helpful is to take the accusation out of our language. Lastly, there may be a situation where you just need to seek help. You need to get help by, uh, you know, going somewhere to a professional, talking this thing through, and getting some future or additional advice. At what point does a person need to recognize I can't do this on my own? the family nucleuses or my friends or whatever are just not helping me get there. What's that step? I would say, listen to other people. Yeah. They're the better judge of you than you. You know, I, when I was a leader, I heard this all the time. You're an asshole. You're fair, but you're an asshole. Okay. I was living that life of direct to the point, no emotions, no empathy. I got it done and I was fair, but I was an asshole. Now I get out and there's no reason to be fair with anybody because I'm not leading anything, but I'm an asshole. So I had to, I had to work on that. But listen to other people. Um, and don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait till you're going through another divorce. Don't wait until, you know, the spouse might speak up and say, hey, the kids are really upset or they're afraid of you or they don't want to be around you. All of those are cues. And I think really people know. I mean, you knew and, and you really needed help. Mad. It's either you're trying not to get caught or you got caught and you're trying to minimize the damage or you get, you almost got caught and you didn't. So you're back at it again and, and you don't hope you don't get caught. I lived in a stressful life for so long. I couldn't stand it. I tell her now I would never cheat on you. I would never do this on you because it's too stressful. The life I lived before of, of, of I didn't do that. I didn't work here. I don't do this. It was just it weighs on you. So be honest about what you want to do. Guys are like, oh, my family's the most important thing. And I'm flying to Africa for four months to work. You know, my kids are freaking out. My wife hates it, but I need money. You just said your family's the most important thing. Right now, it's your job or money. Which is it? You know, you're verbalizing one thing, but your actions show another. So be honest. Self-assess. Listen to other people. When they tell you you're having a problem, and if you keep trying the same thing over and over again, you know, like the one guy that, oh, I got caught and I cheated on my wife and we worked it out and then I got caught again and now she's leaving me. I'm like, well, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. That might be two strikes and you're out, buddy. I mean, you know? sometimes you just screwed up and you got to deal with it. Um, but yeah, I think help comes from really um, a lot of times the caregivers. I had to kind of push you into, into help. Um, but he actually yeah. did see an anger management specialist in Savannah um, who who actually was worked with Eric Clapton on uh, on his addiction issues. 
So he was this really cool guy and, yeah. and really, really, really helped Tom so much understand the biological response of anger, how anger was a tool for him in war and, and how to sort of retrain his brain to start seeing the positive in life. And that's a huge thing is every time you have a negative thought or something's BS and, you know, you get started to work that anger up, stop and think of something positive. And that really does create, that's a biological tool that you can use to start creating new pathways in your brain to start responding in a positive way instead of a negative way. Just look at social media. People go back rid of it. and forth, <laughs> back and forth and negativity and you and us and all oh, the protesting and we lost and we hate you. Oh my goodness. How many of you have were really affected by it? I mean, really, really affected. By yeah. It. Get rid of the negative people in your threads. You know, I start it hitting doesn't... delete on Instagram or Facebook and people posting things. I'm like, scroll up. Who wrote that? Oh, yeah. Later. I don't need it in my life. Um, nothing's going to come of it anyway. You're just angry and you're projecting. And you're going to stay that way. You're going to stay that way. You don't listen to other people. You just announce yourself. You announce your views. Yeah. It almost your becomes ways. part of your identity. America sucks and America this, America that. No, you suck as a human being because you think everything sucks because you don't like yourself. So everything that you're part of is horrible except you. That's not true. You're the horrible person. You know, fix yourself and the perspective of, of life that you're looking at will change. You know, it's it's I start getting rid of all those people. I used to maybe not even like a horrible that. person, but a horrible no, outlook, I think. You know. I, I don't. I throw out absolutes, and I don't mean it that way. Like everybody's horrible, everybody's great. Black just, and white with this guy. I, 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 quick, short sentences to get my point out instead of <laughs> dancing around the words. But you know, I did the same thing. I was posting this, posting that, and angry. Like, you know what? <laughs> why angry at the world? Know, why? I'll go vote, and if I lose, okay, I'll vote four years later. You know, it's a uh, whatever. My life typically does not change unless I allow it to change, or I change it. So why can I? How can I blame everyone else for that? One of the things that we found most helpful <clears throat> is um, cognitive therapy. Mind and body reset. You can start with health. You can start with nutrition. Get your body right first. If your body's out of whack and nutritionally and physically you're out of shape, you know, it's not working properly. And if you're trying to get your body to work properly and your brain to think properly, you need to feed it properly. You need to exercise and get everything kind of in balance before you can start really altering things. It's like uh, guys come to the range and they'll shoot their pistol. And then they'll start changing zero of the rifle and they'll start changing zero. I was like, now let's hold on. Let's figure out what's going on with you as a whole first before we change any of the sights. You know, you might be flinching or twisting or anticipating recoil or. So before you change, let's get you right. And then let's assess you as a person, you know, as a shooter, or as a person. And then we'll figure out what you're doing wrong. You know, you have to have that assessment first. And then you got to be you got to start out Right from a good foundation, which means if physically or and mentally and, and nutritionally you're off, you gotta get you gotta get right. And the alcohol. I mean alcohol's alcohol. a I'm drinking anger I don't trigger. Know why I'm angry. Yeah, yeah, it's an aggressive depressant juice. I mean, right. It's, it's, it's depressant juice. And, I mean people get in bar fights when they're drunk, right? I mean that's <laughs> that's what happens because alcohol causes aggression. So probably if you're having anger issues and you can't manage it, probably drinking a six pack every night you're just throwing gasoline on the fire. So you have to really look holistically at, at what's going on with you and your world. And I absolutely agree with your comment about exercise because 
really from a biological standpoint, you're causing adrenal fatigue, you're lowering your cortisol levels, you're increasing your endorphins and, and you know, you'll sleep better. Um, your mind gets clear. So exercise isn't just, you know, I think for Tom, it was very functional for him, obviously for a long time in the unit, he worked out three to four hours a day, rode his bike 15 miles to work, rode it back. And it was very, it was part of the tool he needed was his body to perform, um, to keep him alive. But, and a lot of guys, when they get out, stop working out, they stop exercising, hanging out on the couch, drinking a six pack every night. And they wonder why they're not feeling so good or why they're getting angry or why things are going, you know, kind of crappy in their life. And when they really start self-diagnosing, when I start asking questions like, how much are you drinking a night? And they'll lie. <laughs> I don't drink every night or maybe one a night. I'm like, I talked to your wife, <laughs> you know, like I know, um, you know, lay off the booze and start working out. And when guys really start doing that, and it doesn't mean you have to go back to the gym for three hours a day. Guys we know are paddle boarding or mountain climbing or hiking or taking Walking. a walk, anything just to move your body for 30 minutes a day. When they start doing that, when they start taking back their health and eating right and stop drinking so much, um, start working on getting better sleep and quality sleep. So they're addressing the biology of their body. They see significant changes in a short time, two, three weeks when they're consistent with it. I, I get a call every time about 10 to 15 days in. Oh my gosh, my wife asked me what I'm doing. You know, like it's noticeable in the family unit because uh, they're feeling better that those cortisol levels have dropped and, and the endorphins have started to increase and the mental clarity starts to really come into focus. And that from that place, you can start making greater change. Scott, do you see the same thing? The guys get out or retire from anything, the law enforcement, military, they just stop working out or, or they get out and they stop doing what they did that helped them out when they were in? Yeah, I think Jen hit the nail on the head with it. With We see it as functional, you know, as your fitness and your health. You need that to do a job. And when you get out, I'm not doing that job anymore, so I don't need to do those things. But I, one of the biggest things for me, I think, after about six or seven years of being out, I realized I enjoyed running for the solitude of it. I said, and we spoke about it before on a podcast. I used to go and put my headphones in, put some music on and 45 minutes an hour. And eventually I, I was doing Ironman triathlons. I was doing, but I enjoyed going out for kind of marathon runs, 20 miles because You'd have two to three hours worth of just music in. Nothing else matters, you know. You've got you got to keep on my heart rate on, on my watch, and this is that's all I've got to focus on. Nothing else in the world matters now for for two or three hours, and I just enjoyed that. The lack of anything else going on with me at that time, and um, I run out of time, and I change jobs, so I, I don't get as much time, and that's a shitty excuse, I know, but. It's, uh, it's it's one of those things I had to prioritize uh, and drop down my running and things. But I, I want to get back to doing that because I just enjoyed me, you know, and, and just having that opportunity to just switch off, really. But it's I think for people, you need to find that thing, whatever it may be, where you can just be you, be who you're happy with. You don't have to impress anybody else. You don't have to think about anybody else for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it may be. 
but just find that thing that lets you be you, the the comfortable you, you know, you, who you're comfortable with yourself, uh, and just crack on with it really and fit that in wherever you can. If you can fit it in every day, great. If it's every couple of days, but you need to put it somewhere because otherwise you're just doing for somebody else all the time and that builds on you as well, I think. Excuses. Mm. And sometimes it's a prioritization. Like I just don't have that time, but I have a little time, so I'll do less. Yeah. A lot of guys use it as an excuse versus a priority we, thing. We started using a different language tool. So when some of the guys – um, you can hear it. I can't do this or I can't, or I, you know, I don't have the time. I said for one week, replace can't and don't with the word won't. So instead of saying, I, I can't go for a run, um, change that language to, I won't go for a run because you really start to see where the excuses are when you say you won't do something, because then that gives you the power of choice, um, versus the, um, comfort of an excuse. And you can really see kind of where your habits are and, and where you want to shift them when you get real honest with, like you said, you know, oh, that's an excuse. And and you become aware of it and awareness creates change. So once again, thanks to everybody that's already become a patron. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the podcast, you can do so by going to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash mentors, the number four M-I-L. Hit us up and become a patron today.